Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. A positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, 1-866-408-7669. We're going to have a big hour uh, coming your way. We have uh, Michael Wall standing by center, Tom Cotton in studio at the bottom of the hour, we believe, anyway. Uh, He is actually in New York, maybe doing some fundraising to run for president. Who knows? We'll get to the bottom of that. We also know that the President of the United States feels as though he's got he's got a great motivator. He's such a great speaker. He's going to be using some of that motivational skills to go out on the road. Uh, he's going to be delivering remarks on the need to raise the debt ceiling. And, of course, in doing that, he'll vilify Republicans. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I have never seen the top military brass in the country so directly contradicts the commander-in-chief. It was an extraordinary moment. And I think this episode has had a more lasting impact than just foreign policy or just Afghanistan. You can look at President Biden's approval ratings, and they flipped around the Afghanistan, that botched withdrawal. Does anyone argue with that? Not at all. Fallout and reflection in Afghanistan. As the American presence is gone for now, as lives fall apart and their economy collapses in Afghanistan, this is the nation's former ambassador speaks out and on the disastrous exit that still chases President Biden. Number two. But we can gather for Christmas or it's just too soon to tell? You know, Margaret, it's just too soon to tell. We've just got to concentrating on continuing to get those numbers down. The Fauci follies continue as he pretends we are not in the midst of an overcoming the Delta variant and supports mandates from cops to kids and won't commit to letting us celebrate Christmas. The effects of these mandates are causing widespread harm. Case in point, teachers in New York City, thousands unvaccinated, as well as medical workers, told to go home. Number one. It's the death of 2020 Joe Biden, the guy who ran against the progressives and he went up to Capitol Hill and he capitulated to the progressives, the liberals in his party. Why should we be surprised? He couldn't stand up to the Taliban. How could we expect him to stand up to AOC? Epic fail. He didn't have a plan. He didn't have leverage. And in the end, President Biden doesn't have anything to show for his infrastructure and cradle to grave guaranteed pledges. His sides as he sides with socialists, not the mansion moderates. Details and new deadlines coming your way. And that's true. So here's an example. Uh, You talk about an unforced error. This is it. A deadline that President Biden didn't need. He probably should have had. And then you find out there's no deal. And maybe if they you'd say, well, it's so hard to get moderates and uh, moderates together with uh, socialists uh, from the squad. Okay, maybe you want to make that argument. But when the revelation came out in late August that Joe Manchin put in writing what he would raise the corporate rate to, how much money he would actually agree to, which is $1.5 trillion, a corporate rate not 28 but 25 what else he would go do and not do when it comes to green energy in this plan? And you didn't reveal it to the last minute. You didn't use it as negotiation contact. You didn't go ahead behind the scenes and meet with the Socialist Caucus and say, this is what you guys, this is the most you can get from Manchin. Manchin, this is the most you can get from Socialists. And therefore, on the 27th, you fulfill the promise you made to moderates and have a vote. And you turn around and say, guys, if you could agree to these two separate plans, 
then we could get this monster deal, which would be great for uh, Democrats, would be terrible for the country, terrible for our economy, terrible for inflation. It'll do nothing but go up, add to our debt. We're not in the middle of a a great recession or a great depression or a world war or a pandemic. We're on the other side of all those things. We don't need all this spending. But still, the reality is you're trying to jam it through because you have slim majorities in both houses and the presidency. But they, it all fell apart, an unforced error and an epic fail. Uh, Joe took the progressive sides, which is a surprise to me. Joining me now is uh, Congressman Michael Waltz, House Armed Services Committee, former senior advisor of a counterterror to Dick Cheney and so much more. Congressman, are you surprised this is an epic fail uh, over these last five, six, seven days? Well, we were watching, Brian, we were kind of watching Pelosi, you know, play a little bit of a Ponzi scheme here. I mean, she was, you know, promising the moderates one thing and then running over and promising the progressives another thing. Uh, I know the, the the moderates, when Biden came over to the Capitol, uh, was was expecting uh, the president to use his political capital to get the progressives, progressives in line and get this infrastructure bill uh, uh, over the finish line. And he did it. Uh, and in fact, uh, he hasn't even really been whipping uh, the infrastructure bill. And look, you have to go back to if you remember uh, just a few months ago when when he kind of slipped and said he would veto one until he got the social spending uh, and then pulled that back. It, it's been linked in his mind all along. That's what Republicans have been saying all along, that uh, this infrastructure bill was a red herring. It's a Trojan horse. It's phase one. It's a gateway to this overall monster uh, spending package. But, Brian, here's where I think they, they go forward is – and you're starting to see them signal that on the Sunday talk shows. They just want to get the policy in place. They know if they get these government programs in place, free daycare, free uh, expanded Medicare, Medicaid, uh, elderly care, pre-K, free college, you know, free, free, free. If they can get the government programs in place – they can shave down the top line number by saying, okay, they're only in place till 2025 instead of 2028. Get the number more palatable, but at the end of the day, they get these government programs in place. Like Ronald Reagan famously said, the fastest way to eternal life on earth is through a government program, and it will be extremely hard when we get back in power to peel these things back until the entire country implodes uh, from a fiscal standpoint. Yeah, I mean, it's six out of every $10 or seven out of every $10 will go to government spending. And you'll see people will be out there in these restaurants and these sporting goods stores or whatever they decide to do, uh, snack stands, and they'll go, wait a second, by the time I'm getting through these regulations and, uh, and these fees and the taxes, I'm, why am I even in business? Why am I even right. doing this? That's why you leave that's Italy. Right. That's why you leave Ireland. The taxes went through the roof. But, right. But that's why they're leaving California and New York <laughs> and coming to places like Tennessee, Texas, and Florida. But look who's in charge of Washington right now. Pelosi from California, Harris from California, Schumer from New York, and AOC from New York. And so the same people that are destroying those states are the same people that are now trying to mirror those same policies across the country. And I don't know where we're going to have to flee to. Uh, if they, um, you know, if, if they get this through. So I think what the, the Republicans need to start doing is talking about the specifics that are in this monster 2,500-page bill. You know, they've redefined, Brian, what it means to get to do child care. So they've tripled 
the child tax care credit from 1000 to 3600 but now it doesn't even have to be your child in this bill it can be any child or anybody just taking care of a kid and you get and you get this money they have things like they're going to close down the country's largest copper mine because it's on federal land so here i am on the armed services committee desperately trying to bring those raw minerals back home and out of china that are going to power our economy and yet they're going to close down one of our last remaining copper mines that's going to power uh, our electrical grid. Why? So, I mean, the policies are insane, and we've got to start talking about, I think, the specifics. Why Why would we try to get rid of copper? Yeah, it, exactly. And we're trying to go to an electrified, you know, an, an all-electric uh, economy and electric grid and this green grid. But yet China controls 90 percent of the world's lithium. That makes up the batteries, and they're putting – they just put 18,000 miles of high-speed transmission lines made with copper uh, in their smart cities. We've built none. So the sad thing is, Brian, we actually need the infrastructure, but not if it's hostage to a package that's going to bankrupt the country. I, w- I want to pivot uh, to Afghanistan, and I want you to hear an interview that yeah. Jonathan Swan did with the uh, now soon-to-be former ambassador to Afghanistan in the U.S. Listen to Adele Raz talk about what she witnessed. Cut 35. Do you still trust the United States? No. Sorry. I, I, I trust and believe the people. I mean, I've lost in trust in, in the U.S. policies, and I think probably government policies, including my own leadership in government policies. And I'm reflecting and saying how effective I was, or I wasn't. Do you still think of America as the leader of the free world? If you talk about democracy, I probably will question it and laugh at it. Why do you say that? Because you were engaged in building one in Afghanistan, and the people believed in it. They fought for it. But when the negotiations arrived with Taliban, that was not a priority to be negotiated. Do you think Afghans will ever trust an American president again? Uh, Not soon, probably. I'm sorry to say that. I don't think so. And that's just not one ambassador talking. That's the perception, isn't it? Well, that, that's absolutely right. And, and I, you know, I received one note from an, from an ambassador from the Middle East that said, you know, the message across the region is jihad has won, democracy has lost, and the jihadists defeated the greatest army in the world. I got a message from another one, Brian, that said, who the hell would sign up for Team USA? Right now. So so, you know, who can blame her? Uh, This, uh, you know, on the one hand, you say, look, 20 years, long, hard, expensive, uh, a lot of money that was pumped in uh, in in there to help. But at the end of the day, what the generals made clear this past week uh, in the hearings before the armed services committees is it's not a matter of if al Qaeda comes back. But when? Of course. So what has me so damn mad is future soldiers then are going to have to go back and deal with that Al Qaeda threat that they are, you know, certain will come back. And who are they going to have to work with? Who's going to trust us on the ground? Imagine when we had to go back and clean up the ISIS mess if we didn't have the Kurds because they were wiped out. Well, that's what's happening in Afghanistan. Absolutely. Uh, I want you to hear what Rick Klein said on this week with George Stephanopoulos. Cut thirty-four. And now to have information come in from military commanders that there were other options on the table, it's devastating potentially to the White House, and it helps feed a narrative of a lack of credibility at a moment where the White House needs it more than ever. These are critical weeks for the Biden presidency.
And I, my hope is that they cannot outrun this. They want to outrun the Afghanistan issue. They want something happen to domestically to derail us, whether it's the Texas abortion debate or some type of yep. civil unrest. And I just don't think the American people are going to let him get away with it. That's my hope. Your thought? Well, they can't, Brian, because, one, they lied about the Americans being trapped behind enemy lines. Uh, a plane of 116 Americans just landed in Chicago two days ago. So that number is falling apart. Those lies are being exposed. And the other thing they're lying about is that we can do ter- counterterrorism uh, with nothing on the ground, you know, with long-range drones only. And that bot strike that killed 10 civilians just shows you the fallacy of that. So the question is, how bad do they let the threat get? Remember, Obama pulled out of uh, Iraq in 2011. It seemingly went quiet. But meanwhile, ISIS was building up and exploded on the scene just three years later. And untold deaths across the region, attacks across uh, Europe and the United States. So how bad are they going to let it get while they're wishing the problem away with his head stuck in the sand? And uh, and I, for one, am not going to wait until we have another San Bernardino or Pulse nightclub or, God forbid, right. another 9-11. Yeah, by the way, there's, the president's not meeting with uh, Adela Raz. She's asking to meet with the president, and he won't do it. Why? Because he's afraid of upsetting the Taliban. He, he won't accept her credentials as ambassador. Uh, they have a government in exile that was overthrown in a coup. That's right. He's afraid of upsetting the Taliban. Because why? They have Americans they can grab as hostage. They have all the leverage because he gave it to them. Are you still trying to get people out? Oh, absolutely, Brian. We just got uh, a veterans group that we're working with just got seven Brits and Americans uh, across the border into Tajikistan last week. On top of the 116 U.S. citizens, green card holders, 59 children. Uh, Brian, that were crying and thanking the veterans that were on the plane with them because they can go to school in California and Florida and New York and Virginia and everywhere that they're from. I mean, these are American citizens. And what Blinken has done is he puts this little caveat that says, well, there was 100 that wanted to leave. And what I want to ask him is that if he were asked to leave his family behind, would he have left? Of course he wouldn't. But then you don't get to categorize him as not wanting to leave. It's it's a spin, and uh, it, yeah. and it's disgusting. Well, put it this way: while you're working, and you know, uh, if you don't mind me saying so, you got married a few weeks ago. No honeymoon. You almost thought about putting it off. You're working so hard. You got a vice president of the United States who goes to Palm Springs and wouldn't tell us why. You have Anthony Blinken <laughs> who's going to the Hamptons, doesn't tell us why. You got a president who goes to Delaware. We don't know what he's doing. We know they didn't prepare at all to win this vote on infrastructure. He had all this. There was no strategy, there were no tactics. And um, there's certain people that just don't care. Big story about how his links to France and how it hurt him personally on Sunday, that the ambassador was recalled. Uh, he's got all these yeah. links to this. So they're not, they're not going to bat for us. Well, Blinken, Brian, Blinken was, was in Martha's Vineyard until the night before Kabul fell. Wow. Right? Uh, and, I mean, it's just, it's just jaw-dropping, this kind of professorial liberal elite disconnect from the, you know, I want to send them every day the videos that I'm getting every day of women being beaten, uh, of women being executed, of uh, our former allies being hunted down, and American citizens. Gotcha. I mean, the one couple we got across was 80 years old, Brian, Americans. So it, uh, it's just, I, I don't even know how to explain it anymore. Well, keep doing it. Uh, I'm just keep the pressure on. Congressman Michael Waltz, thanks so much. 
Thanks, Brian. You got it. When we come back, I'll take your calls. The bottom of the hour center, Tom Cotton, probably in studio. Uh, 1-866-408-7669. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first. Only on the Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. This piece of legislation costs zero. We're going to pay for it all by raising taxes on the very wealthy well, and big corporations, Mr. Richmond, which is I gotta, by 70%. i got to stop you there. It doesn't cost zero. Whether it's $3.5 trillion or $2 trillion it, it, or $1.5 trillion, whatever, it, it costs that amount of money. Now, you can pay for it either by borrowing it or you can pay for it by raising taxes on corporations and the wealthy, but it doesn't cost zero. At the end of the day, it will cost zero because we're going to pay for it. <laughs> what is wrong with these people? They double and triple down on this, but Chris Wallace is the only one to f- like follow up and say, what are you talking about? This makes no sense because all during the week we're saying, is this a mistake? Did Jen Psaki say this by mistake? Did the president say that by mistake? But now they doubled and tripled down. They were all saying it's going to cost zero because these horrible rich people or corporations are going to pay their fair share. Now, the corporation rate, when it drops, will just allow, or when it goes up again, will just allow businesses to go elsewhere. Okay, fantastic. That means less employees around here. That means it's going to cost more because they're going to have to ship it back and pay all, this, uh, pay all the tariffs that come here. So now they say this, too. We're not going to look at the total. Really? Cut eight. We don't look at this as a number. We look at this as what programs are we going to deliver? How do we ensure that we have child care so that parents can enter into the workforce or stay in the workforce? So for us, this is about making sure that we meet the needs and the vision of President Biden. There are people that need child care. I understand that, and they're listening. There's other things that you do in your life, and that is if you want to have, if you just get married and you want to have kids and you know you both have to work and there's no parents in your area, you might have to put that off. 
That's what happens. It's not the government's job to babysit for you. It's not your government job to make sure you live in the house you want. You have to earn the house that you eventually want or make it into what you want. I mean, I don't understand everyone just leaning on the government to do everything. I want to go to junior college. I can't afford it. You don't want to apply for financial aid? If not, you most likely can't afford it. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. I got to say, I've covered the Pentagon. I've covered Congress, covered the White House. I, I have never seen the top military brass in the country so directly contradicts the commander-in-chief. It was an extraordinary moment. And, and I think it, it confirmed the perceptions that were coming out in real time, that there was different advice that was coming into the White House than that President Biden was willing to talk about because he was standing behind that decision, even as the situation crumbled, even as those service members were killed, even as it became clear that there were serious intelligence failures along the way. And I think this episode has had a more lasting impact than just foreign policy or just Afghanistan. You can look at President Biden's approval ratings on a range of issues issues, and they flipped almost mirror image around that moment, around the Afghanistan, that botched withdrawal. Because it, it involves so much, and it involves the way we look globally, though no one can deny it was a disaster. No one can deny we left people behind. No one can deny what we saw with people hanging off wheel wells, and, and we saw the chaos and the babies being handed over walls. You don't wait for Joe Biden to define it in a different way. Tom Cotton's here. He knows about this. He feels it. He's, an infant, he's in the infantry himself. He's now with Intelligence, Armed Services, and Judiciary Committees, former U.S. Army Infantry officer who's Ivy League grad. Senator, welcome back. First time in studio. But I want you to hear that because that's Jonathan Carl, not really an attack dog on Joe Biden, with, uh, with Rick Klein, who's an ABC, kind of uh, a relatively fair guy. But I think it's totally underplayed. Every one of those commanders, you were asking questions, they said that they did not recommend this way to get out of that country. Yeah, Brian. Well, first off, thanks for having me on. It's great to be in the studio for the I first know, time. Finally. Great to be back in studio after two years uh, of working remotely. Um, so I, at the hearings last week, and it, it wasn't just General McKenzie and General Milley, but it was Secretary Austin as well who said that uh, President Biden rejected his advice. In addition to uh, General Scott Miller, who was the on-the-ground commander in Afghanistan, a legend in the special forces community, former commander of uh, Delta Force, spent almost eight years in Afghanistan over the last 20. All and when, for, and when for, they made it clear that they were getting out this way, is that the reason he left? Uh, they took him out in mid-July, uh, and that was just part of their the military's phase plan okay. to move out. And, and I think part of the reason he left is they were uh, also had just given back Bagram. So what's a four-star commander going to do when you only have 600 troops left on the ground? But the reason why they, they did that is because when Joe Biden said you have to get out by September 11th, they have to start staging the withdrawal, and Biden didn't want to have any more troops go into Afghanistan to do something like hold Bagram. Now, of course, in the end, we ended up putting three times as many troops on the ground in August. In about a week. In about a week, as we had when Joe Biden made the decision to get out. Um, but the all those generals and the Secretary of Defense made it clear that the president rejected their advice to keep a small force in Afghanistan to keep the situation stabilized. They also made it clear, in my opinion, that they would have left troops past the August 31st deadline. If you go back and look at my questioning of General Milley, 
I said, you know, Joe Biden has been proclaiming how the Joint Chiefs unanimously agreed to get out of Afghanistan by August 31st, even though it meant we we're going to leave people behind. When did you make that recommendation? And he said, August 25th. I said, really? Not August 15th? Not the day Kabul fell? He said, we were asked on August 25th. Would have gotten a different answer from the military if you had given them two weeks, not five days. And then third, in the second round of questioning, General, or Secretary Austin acknowledged that neither he nor anyone in the Pentagon chose September 11th as a date by which to withdraw. They wouldn't say who did it, but obviously it came from the president or some political hack in the White House thinking it was somehow symbolic. It's a weird kind of symbolism if you ask me. But it's, it's worse than just being a, a useless political symbol. It was actually tactically dangerous because to get out by September 11th, meant that you were withdrawing at the height of the summer fighting season. Even if you had just waited six months, if you were hell-bent on getting out, wait six months until the end of the year whenever it's winter in Afghanistan and the Taliban have largely gone back into their caves or gone back to Pakistan. So on multiple fronts, uh, our senior military leadership, you know, they didn't call Joe Biden a liar, but they articulated the facts that exposed his lies. Uh, I was fascinated to see other networks besides Fox ask Jen Psaki, three straight separate reporters, can you name the generals that did? Can you name the generals that did recommend this? I can't. That's a, I can't do that. Here's what Marsha Blackburn said about who might have recommended this to Joe Biden, although we think that's his idea anyway. Cut 39. I think the advice came from Ron Klein and Jake Sullivan and Susan Rice and Wendy Sherman and Anthony Blinken, Uh that they were saying, let's get out of there. Let's take this victory lap. Joe Biden, you can say you're the guy that ended this. I think that's where it's coming from. What do you think about that? The non-military people. So so I, I think it's all political people in the White House. But I think it starts with Joe Biden. Remember, Joe Biden has taken pride for 12 years that he advised Barack Obama not to surge troops in Afghanistan in 2009. He would tell anyone who would listen, oh, the president, President Obama got rolled, he got boxed in by the military. That would never happen to me. In fact, back in April when he announced that we were withdrawing from um, Afghanistan, he was proud of that decision. He was all chesty about how he didn't let the military roll, roll him, how he stood up to him in a way that Trump and Obama wouldn't. Then four months later, once everything was uh, had gone to hell in a handbasket, all of a sudden it was like, well, this is what the generals told me. I just took their advice. No one told me that this could be a problem. So over the span of four months, he went from from being proud and boasting that he had rejected the senior military leadership's advice to saying that he just followed it or they didn't give that advice to him. So what I don't understand, too, from your hearing is you asked General Milley, why didn't you not resign, Right. And he said, well, you know, my dad didn't have or my grandfather didn't have a ch- didn't have or I guess his dad didn't have an opportunity to resign out in I- Iwo Jima. I don't understand that analogy because you go into battle. Does it, it is Iwo Jima a mistake? Clearly, he must have known this is a mistake. You're you're a military guy. When is it the right time to resign? Just because you're commander in chief and you disagree doesn't mean you should hand in your stars. So I, I understand the points he was making and, and they're valid points for a senior uniformed officer to consider um, that we want our senior military leadership to give their best professional advice, to be candid about it, to caution the president when he's making a mistake. But in the end, it's the commander in chief that's elected to make these decisions. And second, that um, when a when a uniformed officer resigns, that can be an inherently political act of making it clear that you disagree on a policy ground. That's different from, say, a secretary of defense. Secretary of defense is still a political appointee. Um, I think the point about his father in Iwo Jima or those 13 troops at Abbey Gate is um, if if the president rejects the general's advice, the general's got a pretty easy path to resign. 
you can you know he's sitting comfortably in the E ring of the Pentagon and up at Fort Myer, um, but those young sergeants, those young privates, don't get a chance to do that. And that it's incumbent upon senior military officers right. to keep them in mind. I think that's right. what he was getting at. And Senator, this I is I want to play that out because if it comes out that General Milley will be resigning because he cannot go no longer go along with this Afghanistan policy, maybe there is not a problem at Abbey Gate because he'll realize politically, Joe Biden, this is a disaster. If Mark Milley, who just stood up to Trump, is now resigning, this must be a terrible move. So maybe the, maybe you hold cobble. You know, it's it's possible it's possible that that could be a circumstance that any president could face. I just think because this president takes has taken such a point of pride for twelve years that he's the one that'll stand up to the military that he won't get boxed in. He's too experienced and seasoned and wily. Um, I, I think that President Biden might have liked that. I bet Ron Klain would have liked it um, if any of his senior military leadership dissented publicly and resigned. Because it would it would have fed into the narrative that they were spinning right. from April until the first of August, which is Joe Biden is the tough, seasoned, experienced president who won't let these generals box him in. So I want to, when we get back, talk about something not again, not getting a lot of traction, but I know you've been following, and that is what's happening with this storm investigation. There's a lot more than people think. But before I go, you have a vice president. I don't care about it, bad or good. I'm talking about disengaged. She went to California, told the press to stay alone, went speed walking with her husband while she's in charge of the border. We know that the Panamanian foreign minister said, I've been trying to get a hold of this administration to tell him about this problem since since January. And then you had the problem at the border. You got this issue in Afghanistan. You got this negotiation that's happening. She could be invaluable like Mike Pence was for Donald Trump because she has the relationships in the Senate and you would imagine in the House. What is can you just can you can you get your head around this? <laughs> I think the Biden high command maybe thought she'd do less damage if they sent her off to California for a weekend than if she was still in Washington. You think so? I mean, are they I, that are you hearing? Are they that separate because of her comments about Israel and at George Mason University? Well, I mean, and just, the genocide question that she threw in the street. Well, look, I mean, Kamala Harris has not distinguished herself with a string of successes through her political life. She's kind of stumbled upward from one job to the next, and you just see some of the things she's done as vice president, like sitting there nod, nodding idly when someone accuses Israel of committing genocide or responding to some reporter who asked why she hasn't been to the border by saying she hasn't been to Europe yet either. I mean, right. there's a reason why her presidential campaign imploded on the, on the launch pad and didn't even make it to the Iowa caucuses. But it's not even – this is not even – well, if you look – it's not like let's look at the other side of the coin. I'm looking at every side of the coin. There's no way that anybody looking out for her and her political fortunes would say, go to Palm Springs without the press. Don't tell anyone the reason while everybody else is holed up trying to cut a last-minute deal. I know. I know. Right, you have it's nothing remar- to say. It's, it's remarkable. <laughs> I, I, I just wanted you to bring me inside the cloakroom for a second. When we come back, I want you to unwind, uh, and I'll have Cash Patel has weighed in on it. What Dorham's doing with these names you might not have heard of, but it's fascinating what he might be building. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Giving you everything you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. 
I think they knew right away in the documents that we put out in okay. the Nunes investigation, the Nunes memo, and the Hipsy uh, report on Russian active measures show that the FBI knew right away because their FISA abuse process, now that declassification process is complete, and your viewers can read it, that the FBI knew the information was fraudulent, they knew the credibility problems with Christopher Steele, and they knew the DNC through Fusion GPS and Perkins Coie were piping in tens of millions of dollars into the, into the machine so that they could get up a FISA warrant on President Trump. So I think they knew right away, which is why I think wow. the individuals at the head of the FBI need to be held accountable. So the tech guy uh, working for Perkins Coie and Sussman, Michael Sussman, the lawyer who said he was just on it because he cared about this country, said, I'm really concerned about the relationship this bank has, uh, this Russian bank has with the Trump team. Really? Okay, so I'm looking to those links. And your background is, as he gives his information, Jim Baker gets his information, he's the FBI guy. Uh, your background is just a concerned citizen. Turns out he's got direct ties, he lied about it, direct ties to the Clinton campaign. The tech guy, direct ties to the Clinton campaign. As we see John Durham put this case together, are they trying to say in a, in a, a methodical way that the Clinton campaign was behind the whole Russian collusion, which some would say is a hoax. I'm not going to lead the witness. Uh, Senator Tom Cotton's here. Senator, what do you glean with your law degree? What do you glean that Durham's up to? First off, I've been a recovering lawyer for 15 years now, so don't count on me for uh, legal advice if you're listening at home. Um, So what I would say based on on what we already know about the FBI's view of Christopher Steele, the former British intelligence officer who put together the so-called Steele dossiers, and the news that's been released recently about uh, activity in the Durham probe is that uh, you could have uh, you could have very senior FBI officials uh, who are abusing these processes to, in effect, spy on the Trump campaign. Because the FBI knew from very early on that uh, Christopher Steele um, was not going to be a reliable source. I mean, remember this guy was not like in Russia himself, and he came to personally lobby. Uh, in the fall when he felt yeah. as though the, the Republicans were not getting it, Democrats weren't getting it, that this is yeah. – this guy's tied to So it. senior FBI officials had, had – they were aware that he was probably being fed Russian uh, disinformation. Um, that, yeah, if you go poking around Russia asking for dirt on a Western politician and the old KGB spooks get wind of that, like, oh, yeah, we've got some great information for you here. Uh, so – so they cut him off, but then he used a back channel through a personal relationship to continue to feed information to the Department of Justice and to the FBI. And to the media. And, and to the media. Um, that was happening in you know, the fall of 2016. Uh, and then, as you said, he became so personally invested and emotionally attached to the matter, he'd come to Washington and he would like lobby for greater action because he wanted things to happen. And when it, they weren't happening fast enough, that's when he went to the media. So they were doing all these things. I think it raises very serious concerns about their use of these classified uh, processes to get warrants um, that we use on bad guys all around the world for legitimate purposes, but which are subject to abuse. And what people should, as we, Senator, as we talk, this is not about relitigating the past. It's about this nation was hurt for three years. And at the very least, they were massively distracted was the Trump administration by this ongoing investigation. And we were hurt with our relationship with Russia. And they're not great actors. We know the challenges they have. But they were, must have been sitting there after all going, can you believe this? I mean, where this is going, that I feel they feel as though they almost had to defend the sitting president about the lack of access they actually had in reality. They probably didn't know what was going on. So a distracted administration, relationships with Russia, 
misperception around the world that we're coming apart. And it looks like this was all done by the Clinton campaign. It didn't stop after they lost, which they never admitted to. Lastly, China over the weekend had something between 60 and 70 overflights uh, over Taiwan. Is Taiwan prepared to defend themselves should an invasion happen? And do you believe China is set to take action? So I think China is uh, continuing flying into Taiwan airspace for a few reasons. First, it allows them to see how Taiwan reacts from a tactical standpoint. And then, and then China can adjust its tactics, techniques, and procedures. Second, it puts strain on Taiwan's aircraft. So if Taiwan constantly has to scramble aircraft to go intercept these Chinese uh, uh, flights, that means they're not going through their normal routines of maintenance and downtime and so forth. So it puts strain on Taiwan's air force. And then third, uh, they're essentially uh, using it to kind of camouflage um, a potential future invasion. If China is constantly flying into Taiwan's airspace, and it happens multiple times a month, as it has been for a few years now, it's just inherent that people begin to get used to it to a degree, perhaps become complacent. So when when China does one day go for the jugular, then they'll have an extra few minutes uh, of advanced uh, or, or before Taiwan scrambles to defend itself. You know, China hasn't had a really a conflict since that Vietnam skirmish in the 70s and before that the Korean War. Um Will, will we be able to arm Taiwan if we wanted to, to fight? And if they have a fight, would they actually want it or they just want an easy knockout? So China's military is capable of executing the invasion of Taiwan. Um, they are not capable of doing so if America supports Taiwan. And we can make it much costlier short of that and hopefully deter it from happening in the first place if we would be much more aggressive – with our arms sales into Taiwan. So China has thousands of missiles aimed at Taiwan uh, from mainland China. We should be selling Taiwan those exact same kind of missiles that they can arm, uh, that they can aim back at mainland China. We should be selling. They'll tell us not to, and they'll warn us not to. And we'll sell them, and China will just sit there and bear it because there's nothing they can do. That's what we've always done, selling them aircraft, for instance. Senator, guess what just happened with Hong Kong? Nothing. No, so, and well, and even before that, or even since then, is Kabul. I mean, just a few days after Kabul fell, you had the Global Times, which is the Chinese Communist Party propaganda outlet, making fun of Joe Biden and America and taunting Taiwan that we wouldn't come to their aid. That's why it's so important that we be clear that we would come to their aid so we can deter that conflict from happening in the first place. Did you enjoy your first appearance in studio on Fox Nation uh, as opposed to just calling in? It was fantastic. If would, it, would you come back? I would come back. I'm not sure I can come back every day, you know, <laughs> a thousand miles from Arkansas to, to be in a studio. So uh, I'll keep calling in when I'm not here, but when I'm in the city, I'd love to be back. Absolutely. Uh, Senator, you have a carte blanche to come in. All right. Uh, Senator Thank Tom you. Cotton, it was great to have you in. Always making a difference. You don't just win seats, you make an impact with those seats. And we appreciate it. Hey, uh, go to BrianKilmead.com, you, you, BrianKilmeadShow.com. You can stream this anytime, anywhere, and download the podcast. Thanks, Senator. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade.
Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's coming to you. Uh, this is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming to you from New York. Heard around the country. Heard around the world. Michael Goodwin of the New York Post standing by. Bottom of the hour, we get a true understanding of what's happening with our southern border by going to somebody from the Wall Street Journal that covers the South and Central America and all things from the Cuba Revolution to the Venezuelan Revolution. To put in perspective, somebody who does that beat regularly and gets politics out of it, Marie Anastasia O'Grady will be with us providing the insight, that whole Panama story about the foreign minister calling in January to the Biden administration saying there are tens of thousands of Haitians coming through the Panamanian jungles up through Costa Rica, through Mexico, heading towards your border. Here's how to stop it. We don't want it either. What do we? What do you want to do about it? And could not get a response. She will talk about that. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I have never seen the top military brass in the country so directly contradict the commander-in-chief. It was an extraordinary moment. And I think this episode has had a more lasting impact than just foreign policy or just Afghanistan. You can look at President Biden's approval ratings, and they flipped around the Afghanistan, that botched withdrawal. That is true, and that's Rick Klein of ABC. The fallout and reflection in Afghanistan. As the American president's gone for now, as lives fall apart and their economy collapses, this is the president's, excuse me, as the nation's former ambassador speaks out about the disaster's exit from the Afghan perspective and still chases President Biden today. Number two. But we can gather for Christmas or it's just too soon to tell? You know, Margaret, we, it's just too soon to tell. We've just okay. got to concentrating on continuing to get those numbers down. Epic fail. Uh, Fauci follies continue as he pretends we are not in the midst of it overcoming the Delta variant and supports mandates from cops to kids and won't commit to letting us celebrate Christmas? Really? The effects of these mandates are causing widespread harm, polarization. Case in point, teachers in New York City. Thousands unvaccinated told to go home. Number one. It's the death of 2020 Joe Biden, the guy who ran against the progressives and he went up to Capitol Hill and he capitulated to the progressives, the liberals in his party. Why should we be surprised? He couldn't stand up to the Taliban. How could we expect him to stand up to AOC? It's so true. (laughs) Governor Christie going at it. Epic fail. He didn't have a plan. He didn't have leverage. And in the end, President Biden doesn't have anything to show for his infrastructure cradle to grave guarantee pledge as he insists on putting both bills together, costing him moderate support, feeling like the rug was pulled out from under them and going with the socialist, the socialists squad. Joining me now to discuss this, he wrote about it, is uh, Michael Goodwin of the New York Post, Fox News contributor. Michael, welcome back. Good morning, Brian. Thank you. Hey, if he's so comfortable being a moderate, why did he side with the socialists? It, it, it is perplexing because, if you recall back, the the whole idea of him going to Capitol Hill on Friday was to settle the dispute. And you would think that, uh, given his own agenda, that the bipartisan infrastructure bill would be the thing that he would be trying to push on to get everybody to agree to pass that first so that, uh, A, it would take effect, and, B, he would get a political victory, which he desperately needs. Instead, he goes up there and just takes a white flag with him and waves it uh, without a fight. And whatever whatever he learned up there, it, it just he, – he folded like a, 
like a cheap suit. I mean, it was remarkable how he went up there to Capitol Hill and came away with nothing. I mean, and he even says at the end, you know, we're going to get all this done. It may take six days, six weeks or whatever it takes. I mean, if, if you're the president and it's your agenda that you are meeting about and you walk away from it and say, well, whatever, however, <laughs> you know, it, it's uh, as I said in, in my column, can you imagine uh, LBJ doing that or really any president for that matter uh, capitulating like that without even fighting for the agenda that you promised the American people? It makes no sense. And also, this makes Nancy Pelosi look terrible. Susan Pager did a biography on Nancy Pelosi. This is what she said and how she reported it. USA Today's Washington, uh, Washington correspondent, Cut 18. Speaker Pelosi rarely blinks. And the progressives made her blink. And they made her blink. And, you know, and of course, when you go back to the Affordable Care Act, which was a comparable big victory, let's assuming she gets a victory here, but it was the last kind of big victory where she faced seemingly really difficult odds, the liberals, the progressives blinked on things like the public option. And they did not blink this time. I think there are two reasons. There are more of them. Mm -hmm. And they are willing to risk getting nothing as opposed to accepting half a loaf. And that has changed the political landscape here. So a miscalculation, but factor this in. She must have known about Joe Manchin's limits and that paper. What were they doing? This thing had passed in July, the infrastructure bill through the Senate. Why weren't they negotiating behind the scenes? I mean, we didn't, they were negotiating in deadline time. Well, and, and Brian, I mean, that, that also raises the question of, uh, the part that Susan Page said, uh, Does the left uh, have any respect or understanding of how important bipartisanship is? Do Do they value that at all? Or is it just an obstacle when you have gotten 18 or 19 Republican Senate votes for the president's agenda? That's something that Uh, Joe Biden talked about during the campaign as though he could do that and that would be a reason to elect him, that that would help heal the country, it would move the country forward. And so for the left to just turn its noses at that, I mean, Susan Page is right, this marks them as different from a generation ago. Uh, Nonetheless, it's not exactly news. We have known this, that the AOCs of the world, uh, they have one idea, and it is their idea, and no other idea can even be discussed. I mean, they are like college kids. Uh, who, who don't want anybody to speak on campus if they don't agree with them. They, they give themselves a heckler's veto, and uh, that's it. You have to shut up and go along. And that's effectively what they've brought to Congress. And Nancy Pelosi quietly also blinked on this. I mean, I don't know why they are not making more of a, more of a public fight over I know. this. Uh, because it it really does make them all look like they are captive to the far left. Now, that may be 
the reality, and they may, they may not be so unhappy with this. I mean, Joe Biden, after all, has endorsed all of the crazy ideas of the far left, the Green New Deal, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you know, talking about statehood for D.C., packing the Supreme Court, uh, even, that, uh, even the, his attacks on the Georgia voting law, uh, bill uh, have, have been false. And yet, so he has backed a lot of this nonsense, but you would think that in exchange, they would help him get a political victory and get something done. But it seems to be a one-way track only. And if he thinks uh, by appeasing them now, they'll support him later, well, good luck with that, because I'm not sure they'll support the infrastructure bill, uh, even if their own uh, social uh, infrastructure goes down in flames. I'm still not sure they're ever going to back the uh, other bill. Yeah, listen to what Politico said. This Rachel Bade. So just to show you this, what you're saying is not unfounded. That's what everybody is saying. Behind the scenes, there was nothing there. Cut 21. I got a call on Friday night from a very senior, very upset mm. Democrat who was like, I've never seen anything like this. I mean, there were a lot of Democrats on the Hill that were looking to President Biden this week for some leadership. What do you want? Do you want an infrastructure bill passed this week? Do you want to take that win? But they couldn't get clarity. How did he want them to vote? You know, Pelosi kept delaying this vote because the progressives were saying they weren't going to support it, and she didn't have the numbers, and they were trying to get a separate reconciliation deal. And then the president came to the Hill on Friday, and he said, we're going to wait. We're going to hold off on this until we get both of these packages negotiated. And I think, you know, that means that there are some promises that were made to moderate Democrats about having a vote on infrastructure this week. They want to campaign on that. They want that victory. And, you know, Speaker Pelosi said she was going to give them this vote. And then President Biden came in and totally trampled it. I mean, that's the play by play. That's Politico. Hardly an attack dog on President Biden. What is it? I mean, that to me is not a strategy. It's a non-strategy. Right. It's, it's a capitulation. But, uh, Brian, I, I, I do think there is something to it. I mean, I, as, as what Chris Christie was saying, that uh, Biden didn't stand up to the Taliban. Uh, he hasn't stood up to China. Uh, and he can't stand up to the left in his own party. Now, to me, he is displaying weakness across the board. That's the one consistency here. Now, the one inconsistency would be uh, in Afghanistan uh, uh, overruling all of the generals uh, and coming for immediate and total withdrawal of our troops, uh, despite the advice of others. And I think that was very much about he had made up his mind that he was getting out, that he was going to do this. Uh, but, of course, then we have to remember what uh, Robert Gates said about Biden, and he's wrong on every national security yeah. and uh, foreign policy issue in four decades, or now it's five decades. But I, I do think that there is something fundamentally weak about Biden's approach to these things. He, it's almost as though he doesn't want to have a fight with anybody about anything except Donald Trump. Uh, otherwise, he's okay with just whatever. And that's just not leadership. It's certainly not presidential, mm-hmm. and it's not going to get him very far in this polarized world. I want you to hear our favorite guy, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the biggest failure in, in big government in my lifetime. He's still, for some reason, everyone's elite booking 
uh, on the Sunday shows. Listen to what he's the Delta variants dipping dramatically. Cases are dropping. Deaths are dropping. We have this new Merck drug that the minute you get it, you could take it and it squelches all the symptoms. Great news, right? Two thirds of the country is vaccinated. Listen to him. Cut 23. But we can gather for Christmas or it's just too soon to tell. You know, Margaret, we, it's just too soon to tell. We've just okay. got to concentrating on continuing to get those numbers down and not try yeah. to jump ahead by weeks or months and say, what excuse we're me, do with- we are having Christmas. What are, are, are we crazy? <laughs> Christmas two years later, he's still trying to screw with our lives. Well, and, but also the question, I'm not sure who the, uh, the journalist was. Margaret Brennan of Face the Nation. Why well, the yeah. dumb question. Can we have Christmas? Oh, I mean, uh, I mean, asking permission, in effect, uh, for from Fauci. I mean, that is that's been the the go to questions for from the left all along. Please, sir, may we? Uh, it, it's it's treating the American people as as children, and I I just think it's giving it's giving Fauci too much power. And I started off respecting him uh, as I generally respect people in white coats, uh, but. Pretty quickly, it became clear that he's just a weather vane. I mean, you can't tell which way he's going to go, except if you know which way the wind is blowing, you can count on him to do that. And he goes on all these shows, and he continually makes news by being the most uh, dramatic announcement. And and then people say, oh, Dr. Fauci said we have to wear 17 masks today, but not tomorrow. I mean, it's gotten to be silly. I know, but they keep booking them and people keep listening to them. It's driving me crazy. Uh, Michael Goodwin, <laughs> I'm sure you'll write about him soon. Uh, pick up Michael's <laughs> foxnews.com. You could always get uh, Michael Goodwin and, of course, on New York Post, nypost.com. Thanks, Michael. Oh, it's a pleasure, Brian. Thank you. You got it. one 408 7669 Just a quick reminder, uh, the president and freedom fighter, uh, the book that's coming out is Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and their battle to save America's soul is uh, coming out November 2nd, so you can pre-order it now. But I'm also going to have an opportunity to have a book tour, but I'm also going to be doing live shows where I have a chance to really talk, take on the war on history. I'll be November 7th. Come on, West Virginia um, uh, listeners. Uh, November 7th, uh, I'll be in West Virginia. That'll be an afternoon show. Then I'll be, the next one will be November 21st in Orlando, Florida. Uh, WDBO listeners, hope to see you all out there. Ponte Vedra's almost sold out right now. Clearwater's getting there, too, December 3rd and 4th, so please act. And then, of course, I have all the uh, other appearances where I'm going to be in your city. It's a great American story right up and, uh, up and through the Civil War. I think you have to learn about this relationship uh, to learn more about this country's rich history. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Back in a moment. It's Brian Kilmeade. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The infrastructure bill has been delayed indefinitely. So I guess we'll just cross that bridge when it collapses on top of us. It was pretty funny. I mean, it was, did you see the open of SNL? That it was kind of interesting. I mean, they didn't. Obviously, his big problem is he can't put two sentences together. He squints. I mean, he can't get through anything, and almost everything he says has been wrong, especially with Afghanistan. If if Trump had done that or Bush had done that, even Clinton had done that, they would have made fun of that. Oh, yeah, but, we have a little bit of it. Okay, let's listen. Got a major infrastructure bill and a historic social agenda that have to get passed. 
I'm a Democrat from West Virginia. If I vote for electric cars, they're gonna kill me. Kirsten? I want no roads. No roads? Why? Chaos. <laughs> it's me, the Cruella of the Met Gala. I wore a dress that said, tax the rich. Then spent all night partying with the rich. Oops. Get this bill passed today. Just like me, it deserves a second chance. And a third chance. And up to at least 11 chances. Us Democrats are all in this together. Hey, we, we, we sure are. Because fundamentally, we're all the same. Screwed. So uh, there were some moments there. There were some moments. Some were funnier than others. But, um, uh, but they, again, like the late night shows, they're risking humor to not offend Democrats. Oh, I know. It was ridiculous. AOC was terrible, by the way. There was, I feel like there's so many good things to like jump on in the way she talks. Like, and you know, and the singy-songy thing she does. I thought that Joe Biden was awful. He just looked like a guy yeah. with gray hair. He squinted a little bit. Right, and, and leaned forward and did that. Yeah, times. Like, that Is that it. it? Who was really good? Was it Jason Sudeikis? That was oh, he Joe was great Biden. as yeah, Biden, yes. He was fantastic he was as, uh, as uh, Joe Biden. Why not bring him? Well, he's too big now with Ted Lasso. Yeah. The other big story was uh, what happened with the Patriots and the Bucks, And you have the Super Bowl champ, Tom Brady, going back home for the first time since he uh, left as a free agent and then won a Super Bowl and comes back. The Patriots look like a, a playoff team. Even though they're one and three, they're going to be good. And this Mac Jones is tremendous. Tom Brady didn't have the best night, but he had a historic night. Here he is breaking the all-time passing record that Drew Brees held for nine minutes. Cut 49. 28 yards more to set the record. Fires caught, and that should do it. Mike Evans will take it to the 15-yard line. And so on that play, they put it up on the board. Well, Drew, you had it a long time, my man. Well, you had it a few years anyway. Yeah, that was it, and they got to keep breaking it. But it looks like he's going to uh, lengthen that. I also was amazed that he actually—he's not known as a big runner, but usually you could see somebody's age and injuries when they go to scramble. We used to see that. I'm watching Tom Brady scramble. He looks like he's 25 years old, and I'm just astounded by it. I expect Michael Vick and other, uh, Steve Young, those guys to have that type of uh, moves at his age, but not Tom Brady. Just astounding. But I love the fact that him and Belichick just squelched all the rumors. They went and met and hugged out in public and in private. All good. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Normally, there are maybe seven, 8,000 a year that come through. But since the Biden administration entered office and uh, put into place its policies, it's acted as a clarion call to the entire world. The entire world, 120 countries plus, are heading through what they call the Darien Gap to Panama and on up. That's how most of these Haitians got here in the first place to the Texas border. That's how a whole bunch more are going to be coming through and way more besides Haitians. I'm talking from the Middle East, from China, from all the nations of Africa. They're all headed to the border to take advantage.
that is Todd Benzman uh, talking about the reality in uh, South and Central America and how it relates to our border. That does not to be does not need to be explained to uh, to Mary Anastasia O'Grady. She writes the America's Weekly column on politics, economics, and business in Latin America and Canada that appears every Monday in the Wall Street Journal. Mary, welcome back. Hi, Brian. Good morning. Hey, Mary, first off, when people are telling this foreign minister of Panama expressing her frustration that she informed the Biden administration that this was happening, that Haitians and others were coming up uh, because they heard that there was an opportunity now to get in the U.S. like never before. She could not believe there was no action. Does it surprise you? Um, well, you know, Brian, I, I was writing about this back in April and then in August. So, um, you no. know, it wasn't just the, uh, the Panamanian foreign minister. I think this was known that people were coming through the Darien Gap. Uh, the Darien Gap has long been considered the kind of stopper uh, for any migration from South America. But that is over. I mean, the, 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 there are pathways there and... Um, uh, you know, there's been quite a bit of flow for many months now. Uh, it's not really news. So, uh, yeah, the, the Panamanian foreign minister is frustrated with this. But I will also say that the Panamanians are not trying to stop them. What they do when they come through is basically give them humanitarian care uh, because they know they're not staying. And so they just sort of, OK, <laughs> you know, uh, help get them through so they can continue their journey. Everybody knows where they're going. But if you are the president of the United States and you do not want illegal immigrants flooding your border, you call the Panamanians back if they get voicemail and you say, hey, guys, can you stop them? What do we need to help you to do this? And the same thing with Brazil, the same thing with Colombia. We have relationships with these countries. Yeah, I mean, the Mexicans actually have tried to stop them. And as I mentioned in my column this morning, uh, there's about 30,000 Haitians that are being contained. I mean, there's no housing for them, but they're in, in, you know, sort of camping in the very south of Mexico near the Guatemalan border. The Mexicans did not let them go north, but they they were basically overwhelmed because there were so many of them. So, you know, as I said back in, I don't know now how many months ago, um, you know, Biden had no, has no really different uh, view about the migration, um, but he was expecting that Mexico and Guatemala and the countries in, in Central America would do his dirty work for him. And the numbers got so big that they became overwhelmed. And as I said in my column this morning, you know, the American dream is alive and well. I mean, if I'm born in Haiti, yes, I would love to work and save and invest and have a house and raise my family in the United States because there's a rule of law. Um, you know, there's a currency that doesn't devalue all the time. I mean, so far. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's a it's a place where people want to live. So if we want to deal with this problem, there are two things we can do, as I said in my call. Number one, we can make legal immigration more available or more feasible. Uh, you know, the consulates in all these countries should be open for people to come and apply for legal work visas. They have not been open. The State Department has not wanted to go back to work. And there are protocols to protect them against the pandemic. They're all vaccinated, but they haven't wanted to op reopen the consulates. So there's no, no way to go and get a legal visa. If you had a policy where you said, 
you know what, you want a legal visa, come here, get in line, and you get a visa. But if you get caught at the border, you lose that right to have a legal visa. In other words, set up the incentives properly. That's the first thing. But even that could not absorb all the labor that will be coming from this part of the region. And that's why I made the bigger point in my column today, which is that we should take advantage of this opportunity of companies that want to do nearshoring, that is move their manufacturing from China to a place where they can get low-cost labor and yep. be part of the supply chain. There's a real opportunity there. And that, I mean, I got a lot of hate mail this morning from people who don't want any more immigration. But the larger point in my column is this point, if we don't help these countries develop through trade, there's no way we're going to stop this process. True. Uh, I would add this to it, and you do. We need people to uh, drive trucks. We need people to unload ships. We need people in Walmart. Uh, we need people at Home Depot. They can't hire people. You walk into a restaurant, no one's fully staffed. So if they're looking for jobs and we have jobs and America's too lazy or overqualified or is looking elsewhere, underqualified, I'm not sure what it is, and they can help us get back to work and unload the trucks and the ships and they want to do it, where's the loss? We just need to do it in an organized way, correct? Exactly. I totally agree. I mean, you know, if anything, this, this chaos at the border has helped. Um, you know, people who don't want immigration because they say, look, we can't do it in a, in a legal way. We can do it in a legal way, but you have to have political will. And like I said, you could open the, you know, what happens with these people is that they have family members in this country and their communication networks are very sophisticated. And they will tell their family member in Haiti or in Brazil or wherever they are, you know what? There's two dishwashing jobs at this restaurant here. I mean, they know exactly where they're going and what the job is. And if those people could instead go and apply for legal uh, work visas, and by the way, it's very important that it would allow them to go back and forth, because the experience that the U.S. had when, when migrant workers could go back and forth was that they left their families at home and they went back to them. And they used their job in the U.S., you know, to, to stabilize their families at home. It was the best kind of foreign aid we had because it didn't involve government. Um, and, you know, if we restored that, we wouldn't have people coming with their children. They, they would leave their families. These people, are, by and large, don't want to come to the United States. They like their they're, they're, they're grown up in these cultures. They want to live there, but they, ha they need an economic outlet. So I do believe in the legal immigration, but I stress, I really stress that the long-term solution here is development of the rest of the region. And we have an opportunity sitting right at our feet. I mean, the apparel, um, the Apparel Association in this country is begging for reform of these uh, trade agreements that would allow these countries to get the textiles and sew and create part of the supply chain in these countries. I've been in northern Haiti uh, in, on the border with the Dominican Republic. And the Dominican Republic, there's a big company there called Grupo MA, and they use Haitian workers. Their, their factory straddles the border, and they use Haitian workers on one side, and they love their Haitian workers. The people, these people are very eager to have those jobs. There's another plant there that uh, was built uh, back, uh, I don't know, more than 10 or 20 years ago called Caracol. And you have uh, South Korean 
uh, Taiwanese and Sri Lankan companies there. But it is a drop in the bucket to what you could have and the opportunity you could give. And when people work in these factories in these countries, they get health care, they get dentistry, they have subsidized supermarkets, they have uh, child care. I mean, the private sector takes care of a lot of the infrastructure um, issues that the government is not able to do. That operation in northern Haiti should be 10 times the size it is if we had the right reform in trade. And by the way, it would also be good for the U.S. Uh, fashion industry because you would have supply chains where low-cost labor would be done there, but more sophisticated, right. higher-paying jobs would be here, and there would be a lot of synergy between those uh, uh, that in within that supply chain. But, Mary, as you know, the, the, it all starts with border security. The Republicans should not budge, and they won't, without border security. And this administration won't even visit the border. The vice president doesn't even went home instead of going to Panama, which is exactly where I would have went nine months ago. And then start dealing with these countries. So until you get border security, you're not going to have these easier reforms. Because, you know, no one's anti-immigrant in the U.S. There's very few. They just want to do it legally. That's all. Well, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. I'm sorry. There's a separation there. So the, I think the trade thing can be done separately. The idea would be to get. Oh, oh I understand. I understand what you mean. China That's a great idea. Over to Central America and Dominican Republic and Haiti. Now, on the on the root causes, as our vice president likes to talk about, let me tell you one thing. The Democrats in Guatemala have been working very hard with the left there. And the left there uh, supports uh, NGOs that block roads and the development of hydroelectric dams. They invade farms. I mean, they want to turn Guatemala into a socialist country. And who are their friends? Our, our, our politicians on the left in this country, the progressives. So, you know, Kamala Harris talks all about root causes of, of uh, immigration. Well, the root cause is basically underdevelopment. And the Democrats are on the wrong side of that argument in a country like Guatemala. It's, there is a lot of corruption. They complain about corruption. We all agree there's corruption. But they are very anti-development. You know these NGOs that are anti-development throughout the region. And this is what the, our foreign policy does in a country like Guatemala. It's totally counterproductive. I hear you. And hopefully this administration will start taking this seriously because I, I you know, with seeing those, I think things changed two weeks ago when our drone team picked up the surge of, of Haitian, doesn't matter they were from Haiti, of migrants uh, illegal immigrants about to be uh, over that uh, under that bridge, and there were fifteen thousand in a matter of three days. And now we hear more are coming. Is that true? Is that what your sources are saying? More are coming. Yes, I mean, you know, I I had this in my column some examples today, but uh, you know, after the earthquake in Haiti in two thousand ten, a large number of Haiti's Haitians went to Brazil, Chile, and Venezuela. And just off the top of my head, I think the number that went to Brazil is about 180,000, and the number that went to Chile is about 100,000. And Chile has been changing its uh, immigration policies, plus these countries went through very bad recession with the pandemic. So these people are very desperate. And that's what's provoked this kind of migration north. But I think, you know, you made another point earlier on uh, the, the Biden administration has also signaled, as 
I didn't mention in this column today, but last week I mentioned, you know, if you interview, and there have been interviews of the Haitians moving uh, through, the, you know, from Colombia across the Gulf of Urabá into the Darien Gap in Panama, and when they interview them, they say, oh, because Biden uh, <laughs> opened the border. I mean, it's not true, really, but Biden has sent these messages that, yeah, Trump was a bad guy. Trump wouldn't let us in. But Biden, yeah, he's going to let us in. And I would just add to that that Mayorkas, our Homeland Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, said just last week, I think it was, that 13,000 of the 15,000 who were at the border there um, were released into the country. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of detail around that. I tried to find out. But I think that as far as I can tell, the vast majority of them were not tested for COVID. I don't think they were. And I don't think that they were given um, uh, court hearings. I mean, the courts are totally backed up. But you would think at least they would give them a court date. And I believe that they just told them what I was told when I talked to some people in the in the who specialize in this, that a, a lot of them were just told that they had to um, report to ICE wherever they landed. They just had to file a report. In other words, they didn't have instructions to appear. So um, what do you, what kind of in, I mean, I am very pro immigrant. But what kind of message does that send to all these other people who are thinking, okay, if I just get there, I can somehow get in because, you know, this is a great country. And by the way, not a racist country, apparently. (laughs) Yeah, I guess not. Uh, Mary, Anastasia O'Grady, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Very few people have firsthand knowledge like you do. Thank you. Great to talk to you, Brian. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Uh, When we come back, we find out if there's more to know. Don't go anywhere. Brian Kilmeade will be right back. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America is listening to Fox News. Breaking news. Unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. The NBA announced that unvaccinated players will not be paid for any games missed due to local vaccine mandates. But that won't matter. NBA players have a long, proud history of losing money because they refuse to use protection. All right, that was one of the rare moments when everyone could laugh. Uh, So that was SNL over the weekend. By the way, before we do more to know, uh, special thanks to KFIZ 1450 over in Wisconsin. They now are carrying the show for two hours. We appreciate it. Uh, Their slogan is, the one you depend on, News Talk 1450 KFIZ. We're privileged to be on there, and I hope everyone loves the show. Meanwhile, I think it's time time to find out if you need to know more. More to know. Sponsored by Oxford Gold Group. Call today to learn how you can protect your retirement and savings account. 833-600-GOLD. That's 833-600-GOLD. All right, get this. Science fiction will soon come to reality. William Shatner, 90 years old, is scheduled to launch on the next crude space flight of Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin. This is a this is a media coup. This is a publicity coup. Uh, this is great. Star Trek captain finally gets to use his unitard for something that really works. The launch is planned for October 12th. So, wait a second. Is that next week? That is next week. So, I, I thought it was like a year from now. So, I guess he must have done his physical. He's, he's going to be fine. Or, like you said, is this just a big media coup? It's suddenly right before. It's like, oh, I have the sniffles. I can't go up. 
I don't think he would. Oh, wow. I, I mean, this is unbelievable. Wally Funk was 82. Um, she was able to get up in the air. But William Shatner going up would just be, everyone would be talking about it. Star Trek uh, marathons would be taking place everywhere. It's a great story. I mean, if it really does happen, it will. I mean, it's also brilliant in that it's going to make us watch again like we watched the first one, right? Yeah. Next, the world's oldest beer traces back 9,000 years. This brew discovered in an ancient Chinese pottery. I did not know they thought about making beer before we did. Uh, evidence of the world's oldest beer has been discovered from uh, in Chinese pots. These drinking vessels were found buried next to bodies in southern China and predate the oldest known evidence. Recipes on seventh recipes on seven thousand year old Egyptian um, papyrus papyrus scrolls. So, what do you think about this? I think it just shows that humans we always loved our alcohol. But did they get, did the beer kill them? If the beer is next to the body. I don't think so. I think maybe they just, you know, always had it nearby because it led to a good time. Good. <laughs> a new survey commissioned by Coinstar finds out one in eight Americans plan on skipping holiday shopping for family and friends who did not share the same COVID-19 opinions as them. Two, third, two of three Americans, 64%, say they've looked forward to the holiday season this year despite many planning buying fewer gifts. More specifically, 39% of the 2,000 can't afford to buy as many gifts this year. Another 34% uh, blame their tight holiday budget on being either unemployed or working low-paying jobs. So the other thing is, you might have a great gift. It's got to be stuck on a ship somewhere. So no, you should do. Buy tickets to your live show. Yeah. BrianKillMe.com. It's the next best thing to a video game. Uh, go there and find out where I'll be. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. Brett Baer at the bottom of the hour. He's got a brand new book out. And Mick Mulvaney will be here in a matter of seconds. We have a lot to discuss. I know uh, in about 20 minutes, meaning in about a half hour or 45 or two hours, Joe Biden plans on coming out and blistering Republicans about raising the debt ceiling. We'll see how effective that is. It's not going to be a negotiating. Uh, that's not a negotiating tactic. That is venting. Not usually effective. But what is President Biden proving to know about negotiating? Not much if you look at a track record. So before we get to Mick, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I have never seen the top military brass in the country so directly contradict the commander-in-chief. It was an extraordinary moment. And I think this episode has had a more lasting impact than just foreign policy or just Afghanistan. You can look at President Biden's approval ratings, and they flipped around the Afghanistan, that botched withdrawal. True, and that's ABC's Rick Klein. Fallout and reflection in Afghanistan as the American presence is gone for now and a civil war might just be happening. Now we find out more about what is happening with an ambassador from Afghanistan that President Biden refuses to see. We'll tell you that story. Number two. But we can gather for Christmas or it's just too soon to tell? You know, Margaret, we, it's just too soon to tell. We've just okay. got to concentrating on continuing to get those numbers down. 
Yeah, uh, it's too soon to tell. Fauci follies continue. He pretends we are now in the midst of overcoming, not overcoming, the Delta variant, which is true. Supporting mandates from cops to kids. Will now commit to letting us celebrate Christmas. Why do we keep booking this guy? Who is actually listening to him? Number one. It's the death of 2020 Joe Biden, the guy who ran against the progressives, and he went up to Capitol Hill, and he capitulated to the progressives, the liberals in his party. Why should we be surprised? He couldn't stand up to the Taliban. How could we expect him to stand okay. up to AOC? Okay. Epic fall. He didn't have a plan. He didn't have leverage. And in the end, President Biden doesn't have anything to show for his infrastructure deal and his cradle-to-grave con- uh, reconciliation deal. And we'll give you the play-by-play, why he sided with the socialists uh, socialist squad as opposed to the moderates, which he claimed to be. With me right now is a man who knows all about negotiating, former OMB director, former White House uh, chief of staff, Mick Bolvaney. Welcome back, Mick. Brian, happy Monday morning. So, Mick, it wasn't clear when we spoke on primetime on Friday that both deals were dead, but now it's true. How do you feel, How do you explain that, knowing that he knew the parameters where Joe Manchin would go in August, and yet they left everything to the last minute, weren't able to come up with a deal because of that. Yeah. Um, by the way, I really enjoyed the television program. You had a great week last week. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, and thank you for doing this. I, I don't think the deal is dead. Listen, Nancy Pelosi is one of the best manipulators I've ever seen, one of the best lawmakers. She gets stuff done. She just does. Um, and while they may have hit a speed bump, I absolutely believe the Democrats are going to figure a way to do this. You hit the nail on the head, though, which is what this is exposing is that – Joe Biden, who was supposedly this bipartisan legislative whiz, is is none of those things. He's, he's not bipartisan. He's catering now just to the extreme left of his party. He doesn't have any particular negotiating skills. He's managed to lie to, Demo- to Republicans in the Senate about tying this social welfare reconciliation bill to, rec- to uh, infrastructure. He said he wouldn't do that, but he did. So he's had one failure after another. The sad part for the country, though, is that Nancy will figure out a way to get this done, and these bills will pass in some fashion or another. Well, and what it would be is we all realize $1.5 trillion of spending we don't need. This is, we're not in the middle of a pandemic. It's not the Great Recession, not the Great Depression. We're not coming out of a war. We're not uh, we're not coming out of a catastrophe where the bottoms fell out of the banks. So yeah. what, what is the reason like, for this? The, the reason is because they have power. The reason is and there's a reason you see the Democrats governing as if they have huge super majorities is that that's what they do. You give them the slimmest um, uh, advantage and they will act as if they are completely in charge. They ran saying they were going to be bipartisan. And of course, they, we knew that those of us who knew them knew that was never going to be the case. It's one of the things the Democrats are actually better at than Republicans. They use power. We try to preserve it. We were always afraid. We never did got rid of health care because we were afraid of losing our majority. They were never afraid of losing their majority when they passed health care in the first place. They did lose the majority, but we're stuck with health care. They're not afraid to lose their majority now. They just want their stuff passed. They've always been more dedicated to changing the way the nation is going and more willing to do things uh, politically than the Republicans are. And she is by far the very best I've ever seen at it. So I, I hate to be negative and I hate to say this is, you know, this is a done deal, but I, I, would, I, I would not think that just because it didn't get passed on the original schedule that this still isn't very much alive. It absolutely is. So I want you to hear what Bernie Sanders said yesterday in exchange with Jonathan Carl. Cut three. Bottom line, if Manchin and Cinema don't come up, don't do uh, what, what, what you are suggesting, what most of the Democrats or almost all of the other Democrats want, does that mean we get nothing? 
No infrastructure bill? No. Nothing? No, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I am absolutely convinced we're going to have a strong infrastructure bill and we're going to have a great consequential reconciliation bill which addresses the needs of the American people. So, do you, so would he settle for $2 trillion? I can't believe I'm even using those words. He wants 3.5 yeah. down from 6. Joe Manchin's at 1.5. Would he settle for 1.8? And this is one of those things that I think the Democrats have outfoxed the Republicans on. In this case, I don't think they did it on purpose, but here's what they've done. Over the course of the last six, eight, 12 weeks, they focused on the number, the $3.5 trillion. Is that too much? Is it really 5.5? Will Manchin take 1.9? I think Biden floated $2 trillion on Friday as a compromise. And here's why that frightens me. If you gave me the bill, uh, Brian, over at the Office of Management and Budget, give me an hour with this bill, and I could make this bill score at $6 trillion. I could make the bill score at $1 trillion without changing any of the underlying policies. I know how to game the system, and I can assure you I am not the only one who knows how to do that. And my guess is the way this is going to get done is the Democrats are going to game the system, leaving the bill substantively in the same condition it is now, but make it look like it costs $1.9 trillion. Manchin will then be able to say, oh, I can vote for it because it's less. They can say they compromised because they brought the number down, and we're going to get the same terrible policies. Republicans, uh, I think, are making a mistake focusing on the, on the dollar figure and instead should be looking at, do we really want this dramatic expansion of government regardless of what it costs? If it costs a dollar, it's bad. If it costs $100 trillion, it's bad. We should be focusing on the policy as much as we are the numbers. So what they're saying, and I even heard Joe Manchin say it, we're going to get the corporate rate not, not 28 to 25. You guys had it at 21. And he said, you know, that last tax uh, cut that Donald Trump put out, added money to the debt and was only for the rich. Do you want to take that on? Yeah, because I, I think, if, listen, there's a lot of folks, I deal with critics of President Trump all the time in the media, in the private sector. And I say, look, what don't you like about the policies? What did we have when Donald Trump was president? You had healthy economic growth without inflation. Okay? You had the lowest levels of unemployment amongst black Americans, female Americans, uh, Asians, everything. Everything was working. When you lower the tax burden and lower the regulatory burden, you unleash this tremendous American creativity and the way to create wealth that the Democrats just can't stand because they don't control it. So that's what I think this is really about. When they, when they go in and say, look, you gave a tax break to the rich, that's what they always say. I was watching an old version of Saturday Night Live from the 1980s the other day, and the Democrat candidates were joking about the, the Republicans bailing out the, uh, the wealthy or giving handouts to the rich. That's just the talking point regardless of what we do. The facts show it differently. The middle class, lower class is better off under Donald Trump's policies than they are in the Democrat policy. Well, did you guys add to the debt besides the pandemic? Do you believe you would have grown yourself out of that, the tax cut? Yeah, we never would have gotten to balance because, again, keep in mind, Congress spends money. The last budget of any president of the United States that was proposed to balance was Donald Trump's. You will never see it again in my lifetime. It's simply not possible. The government has gotten too big. Left to his own devices, Donald Trump would have balanced the budget. But Congress 
spends the money in this country. And even though we had the Republican control of Congress for a couple of years early in the Trump administration, there were some Republicans who were interested in deficit spending. So would we have grown the economy? Yes. Would government revenues have gone up? Yes. Could the deficit have gone down if we had spending discipline? Yes. But I don't think you're ever going to see a day again where we actually balance the budget because too few people have an interest in doing that. Mick Mulvaney, our guest. Mick, what happens if you raise the corporate tax rate? It's at 21. If it goes up to 28 or would Manchin says 25? Yeah, two things happen. First of all, businesses are less productive and the government doesn't really take in that much money. When you raise the corporate tax rate, that's a big deal to the corporation because it impacts their return on their investment, whether or not they want to build a new plant, whether or not they want to expand operations. Their tax rate is a big deal to them. The corporate tax rate is not a big deal to the federal government. It's, I think, less than 10 or 15 percent of our revenues come from the corporate tax. It's just not that big a deal. This proposal has nothing to do with economics. I'm talking about the proposal now to raise the corporate tax rate. It has nothing to do with the economics, money raised. It has to do with politics and getting the Democrats their pound of political flesh. They're doing it because it hurts they think it hurts rich people, and that's what they are interested in telling their voters they did. So if you're looking at it purely what's best for the country economically, it would probably be to have a zero corporate tax rate. But the Democrats can't accept that. They need to have that pound of flesh. They need to sort of have that revenge on the rich, that soak the rich that they've run on and they've promised. And that's why they're looking to raise so many taxes, not just the corporate tax rate. So this whole phrase of uh, this talking point of it'll be zero, it'll cost us zero, that was taken on by Chris Wallace yesterday, cut seven, Cedric Ridgman. You could make the argument if you pay for it that you add zero to the debt, but that doesn't mean that it costs zero. I mean, the fact that you're raising people's taxes is a cost. Well, we're also reducing taxes in this piece of legislation. It's a, 50 million Americans are going to get a tax cut in this piece of legislation. But net-net, net, 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 if you pay for it, working families. But net-net, if it's a $2 trillion spending plan, net-net, it costs $2 trillion. Well, I'm not necessarily sure about that, uh, Chris. And that's why we will make sure that all of the Democrats are involved in how we shape it. What, what is he even talking about? You know, I, I like Cedric. He's a friend of mine, a uh, great baseball player, by the way. And say, I want to thank the Biden administration for promoting him to the White House because that got him off the congressional team. And the Republicans actually won a game for the first time in a long time on Wednesday. Um, but he's danced. He, listen, he's in a very untenable position. His leadership has come out and said this thing costs nothing. Everybody knows that's absurd. It's, a, it's yet another example of politicians, and not just Democrats, do this trying to control the language. It used to be you were anti-abortion, you know, you were pro-abortion, now you're pro-choice. In Washington, D.C., if you, if you spend $1 next year and the, and the same dollar the year after that, they call that a cut. Now they're trying to say it doesn't really cost anything if it's paid for. It's like saying, well, I borrowed 100, I, I paid for my car in cash for $10,000, but it didn't cost me anything because I paid for it in cash. That's absurd. Everybody knows it's absurd. Um, and I think Cedric's in a real tough position there. Listen, we, we've all had to defend things that uh, that are tough to do. That's that's not a tenable position. Cedric knows it. Everybody knows it. I think they wish they had had that one back. And I'd honestly be surprised, although I'm surprised all the time, if the Democrats continue this insane mantra that the thing doesn't cost anything because everybody knows that's a joke. Uh, OK, I want you to hear a little of the play by play that built up to this with Politico. 
Uh, this is what Rachel Bade said was happening behind the scenes. It's astounding. Cut 21. I got a call on Friday night from a very senior, very upset <clears throat> Democrat who was like, I've never seen anything like this. I mean, there are a lot of Democrats on the Hill that were looking to President Biden this week for some leadership. What do you want? Do you want an infrastructure bill passed this week? Do you want to take that win? But they couldn't get clarity. How did he want them to vote? You know, Pelosi kept delaying this vote because the progressives were saying they weren't going to they weren't going to support it, and she didn't have the numbers, and they were trying to get a separate reconciliation deal. And then the president came to the Hill on Friday, and he said, we're going to wait. We're going to hold off on this until we get both of these packages negotiated. And I think, you know, that means that there are some promises that were made to moderate Democrats about having a vote on infrastructure this week. They want to campaign on that. They want that victory. And, you know, Speaker Pelosi said she was going to give them this vote, and then President Biden came in and totally trampled it. So, you tra- so that is the play-by-play. What stands out for you as somebody who does this and has been a part of this? Um, this goes to competency. It does. Uh, somehow Joe Biden was able during COVID to paint himself as a legislative genius and a, you know, a really smart operator in Washington, D.C. I think those folks who have known him for 40 years know that he, he was never the sharpest tack in the, uh, in, in the toolbox to begin with. And I think that's sort of filtering up now that he really is not capable of doing the job. By the way, you're seeing that borne out now in some of the polling data, whether or not you approve or disapprove of his job uh, performance, the, the, the number of people who don't think he's capable mentally. Uh, not, not mentally, but intellectually, of doing the job is growing. It's a huge mistake, a huge mistake for a president to go down to have this meeting with his party in the Capitol and not either have a plan and certainly not be in lockstep with his own leadership is one of the things that gets people scratching their head. Why do we care about that as Republicans? Because what it means is that the president, President Biden, in this circumstance, doesn't have the ability to move votes. Ordinarily, if I'm a member of Congress, uh, and the president comes down to ask me to do something. I'm like, well, if I ask, if I do this, even though I might not want to do this ordinarily, will you help me politically? And you have to expect the president can help you politically. It's one of the reasons that Ronald Reagan was so effective because he could help people back home. Bill Clinton, to a certain extent, the same way. Joe Biden cannot help people get elected back home. His approval ratings are so low. He's, the people that he would have to help are the moderates, and certainly he's sort of shed this image of moderation. He's gone in with the progressives, so he can't really help any of his people get elected. And in D.C., that means you don't have political capital. If you can't help me get reelected, there's no reason for me to listen to you. Uh, and that's where Joe Biden is right now, and I think the, the, the Democrat Party – believe me, listen, if this had happened to the Republicans, um, the, the media frenzy would be, it would be a feeding frenzy over how much in, in the disarray the party is. That's where the Democrats are. They're managing to keep it together largely because of the help right. of, the, of the corporate media, but uh, it's a party in disarray right now. Good. Uh, and I do, I do share with you, they'll find a way to get something done on both counts. Mick Mulvaney, thanks so much. Appreciate it. It's always a pleasure, my friend. All right, go get him. Uh, when we come back, your calls. Brian Kilmeade, then Brett Baer at the bottom of the hour. It's going to be an exciting hour. So glad you're here. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Fast as three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The thing I saw on Facebook over and over again was there were conflicts of interest between what was good for the public and what was good for Facebook. And Facebook over and over again chose to optimize for its own interests, like making more money. It chooses profit over safety. It is subsidizing, it is paying for its profits with our safety.
And that's why Frances Hogan came out, she said. Ivy League grad, was at Google, came over there and realized she couldn't go and challenge this inside Facebook, she says, because she watched people get chewed up when they went and challenged the executives. So she said, I'll just take the I'll just take this paperwork and I'll go public because I have to save the country. And of course, the reason why 60 Minutes, one of the main reasons why 60 Minutes found this palatable is they focused on January 6th, that they said they took controls off after the election. And January 6th happened because people were able to consolidate and put together that rally that ended up being uh, they went into the Capitol, and we don't know what happened from there. So I'm very curious what happens when Francis Hogan, the whistleblower with Facebook, comes to Capitol Hill on Tuesday. Ken Buck, a Republican, Senator Josh Hawley, a Republican, has been very critical of social media, Facebook specifically. But I'm just wondering, there's mostly Democrats, Senator Blumenthal, are they critical of the same thing? I mean, are they happy that Donald Trump is off and different conservative groups are being suppressed? Or are they going to say something universal has got to change about Facebook? I was shocked to see that only 10% of Facebook subscribers are American. Most of the other subscribers, 90%, are outside our borders. But man, does it affect our dialogue. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The new from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. That's it for this special report. Fair, balanced, and still unafraid. Fox News Primetime hosted this week by Brian Kilmeade. Starts right now. Do you have a headline? Brian? Yeah, it is uh, 40, uh, 24 hours. Brett Baer has a book that finally drops and can be purchased by the mass market. This is going to be a good week. All right, Brian, have a good show. Fox News Primetime, hosted by Brian Kilmeade, who may have his own headline. Starts right now. I'm sorry, Brett. I wasn't really watching towards the end of the show. I'm captured. I'm caught up in this book that, <laughs> oh, I, promoted was, that I was promoted. It was coming out. Yesterday, I was a week early, so That's I apologize. Right, yeah, it's called uh, To Rescue the Republic. Uh, <laughs> it is awesome, uh, and congratulations on it. We'll talk about it all week. And that was just the first two days. We've had two more days right after that to come up. Uh, Brett Baer, welcome. It's got to be exciting. Tomorrow, To Rescue the Republic, Ulysses S. Grant, The Fragile Union and the Crisis of 1876, will be available, will be delivered to people. people they're licking the envelopes right now at Amazon, correct? They are. The, the actual drop date, Brian, is October 12th. October 12th. So I'm even early? So I'm too early again? You're, you're two weeks early again. But, but listen, I actually, <laughs> you know, the, the pre-order promo is really, is really doing, it, doing a good job. So you, is it almost too much? No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm all for it. I'm all for it. <laughs> all right. I, just real quick about the book. So we're here 10 years after the Civil War. Right. Yeah. We're trying to make sure everything goes on the straight and narrow. You have Andrew Johnson, who destabilized everything. But in comes Grant. And as Grant goes to exit, what happens? Well, the uh, election of 1876 is just a real mess. I mean, you think 2020 was was bad. Um, 1876 was states that did not certify electors. Uh, so there were it was up in the air and we were on the brink of heading backwards into another civil war uh, because of the battle with the South, um, the fight over slavery. And Grant essentially makes this grand bargain uh, to kind of hold everybody together. One of the you know things that you get through the book is 
here is a leader who was pretty quiet, humble, uh, but he was the biggest general that we had ever seen and had, um, and then saves the union once, but then does it again as president uh, to try to hold everybody together. All right, it goes through. It's, uh, it's almost like a novel. It reads like that. But, Brett, talk about a novel. That's what we saw last week. I cannot believe the things that took place in order to build up to the two deals that didn't happen last week. Here, here's Bernie Sanders talking about well, what he thinks will happen. Cut three. Bottom line, if Manchin and Cinema don't come up, don't do uh, what, what, what you are suggesting, what most of the Democrats or almost all of the other Democrats want, does that mean we get nothing? No infrastructure bill? No. Nothing? No, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I am absolutely convinced we're going to have a strong infrastructure bill and we're going to have a great consequential reconciliation bill which addresses the needs of the American people. Do you think they're en route to that by Halloween like they now state? You know, I think they're closer, but, um, you know, it's going to have to, the progressives are going to have to come back a little bit more, I think, for the mansion and cinemas of the world. Remember, he was at 1.5. Let's say he's at 1.7 or 2. They're still, you know, in the upper twos to three. Uh, that's a lot of money. If you think back to the asset relief fund, remember the TARP? Um, sure. That after everything was falling apart, $800 billion, and everybody's saying, this is amazing. We've never spent this much money. And now we're at talking $3 trillion. We're talking $3 trillion, but Joe Manchin had in writing he'd only accept $1.5. Brett, how do you explain that staying secret and many in his own caucus not knowing that they did have a negotiation point to work off of, and they didn't start negotiating until the last few days? A lot of people on the left, I understand, were astounded by this. Yeah. Well, the fact that Schumer didn't acknowledge it, didn't say anything to his own caucus that this is where these guys are, um, you know, tells you something about how they were trying to operate. They were trying to strong arm both of those senators to get what they wanted. And, you know, whether it's the progressives following cinema into the bathroom or, um, you know, somebody kayaking up to Manchin's houseboat, um, you know, that kind of pressure does not work, it seems, with these two. Here's Chris Christie and Donna Brazil locking horns on this week with George Stephanopoulos. Cut 20. That's a partisan take, to be sure. Wait, 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 but, let but, me ask you a question. Wait, no, hold me, on a second. Yeah. Did he stand up to the Taliban? Why is that partisan? He wasn't. He so hasn't stood up to anyone except for the people in his own party who nominated him. Donald Trump invited Bernie Sanders the Taliban. didn't vote Donald, for him. Donald Trump was inviting well, the Taliban to camp David. Oh, I know. Donald Trump, by the way, Donald Trump, in case you didn't know, Donald Trump's, by the way, Donald Trump's not in the White House anymore, and Joe Biden is kind of in the White House. Joe Biden has created more jobs in the first couple of months of his presidency than any other president. And more inflation. Thank you. He inverted Inflation was already coming down the pipe. I mean, get really ugly uh, between this. But the whole thing I'm added more jobs and the $1.9 trillion rescue package created more jobs is total fiction. We're we're adding jobs because we're in a pandemic and everyone was told to quit and stay home. Of course you're going to be adding jobs. And there's a strong argument. Nobody needed the $1.9 trillion. We just put a trillion out the door when Trump was leaving. Yeah. I mean, listen... um, we haven't spent all of the 1.9 from March. Um, so 
you know, there are some people looking at these numbers saying you can authorize it, but you're not going to be able to spend it that fast. And, um, you know, it, there's a potential problems. You know, when you flood, as Christy was saying, I mean, the, the inflation potential uh, goes exponentially. It's already here, but it, it steps up a, a great deal, according to a lot of people. I, I think, you know, it, the battle that you heard Donna saying is um, is the hope that that's where the focus becomes and that the economy bounces back because there haven't been big wins for this administration in a long time. Absolutely not. But don't worry, Dr. Fauci's here to save the day with the with the variant, the Delta variant falling, deaths falling, cases falling by 35 percent over the last couple of weeks. And this great news from Merck with this drug they now have. The question is, Brett, will we be able to celebrate Christmas? Keep your fingers crossed. Cut 23. But we can gather for Christmas or it's just too soon to tell? You know, Margaret, we, it's just too soon to tell. We've just okay. got to concentrating on continuing to get those numbers down and not try yeah. to jump ahead by weeks or months and say what we're going to do at a particular time. Let's focus like a laser on continuing to get those those cases down. And we can do it by people getting vaccinated right. and also in the situation where boosters are appropriate to get people boosted. Hey, Brett, do you want me to tell your sons about Christmas? We might not be having it this year. <laughs> or do you want just Anthony Fauci call your house? Oh, man. We need to focus like a laser. Um, I, I tell you, it's, you know, you look at these uh, college football games and the NFL games and everybody's outside and having a great time. And I don't know. It's tough to hear that, you know, as we've gone through this uh, two years, um, it's tough to hear that prognostication. But I, I understand what he's trying to do is trying to get more people vaccinated. But I'm not sure that that messaging has been the way to do it. What is he, my parent? Is he raising me now? Is he trying to, like, now, what, what is he doing? I mean, for one thing, where's that question come from? Can I have a Christmas? Uh, two years after a pandemic, when you see the numbers where they're at and you see the UK and everybody else going back, you see Europe welcoming and travel again to a degree, Australia as well. And now we have to ask Anthony Fauci for the Christmas, for permission to shop. Um, less, no. And with your family. I mean, that, that's the real thing. I mean, Right. It's not, it's not like you're inviting 700 people over. Absolutely. Um, I, I don't know. So there's mass, as you know, there's this mandate mania, and it have, they wanted every teacher vaccinated in New York by today, 5 o'clock Friday. There's about 3,000 that aren't. Here's the reporting on five. This is Teachers for Choice Coalition, one of these unvaccinated teachers saying that now they got to get a flood of subs today. It is chaos. This is Michael Kane, Cut 30. Well, I don't anticipate there's going to be any problems from staffers that are unvaccinated. Uh, some people might be coming in just to say, hey, look, I'm, I'm ready, willing and able to work. And if they're turned away, they're going to go away peacefully. The chaos is going to be inside those schools when they don't have the proper staffing. We just saw an email from UFC President Michael Mulgrew uh, stating all of these rules were allowed to break now uh, because they just don't have the staff. And that's cool. security officials, lunch ladies, people to work the cafeteria. Do they understand the ramp, the ripple effect of these mandates? No, no. But um, they're going to feel it here. I mean, you're talking about you know potentially thirty thousand um, just in that area alone. That's that's crazy numbers, and that changes the ability to run a school. Um, 
so I think it's a bumpy ride here. I, I think it's the same with the health care workers, and there will likely be you know legal challenges uh, that we're going to see play out in the courts. Go get them, Brett. See you tonight at 6. All right. We'll see you. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. By the way, go to BrianKillMe.com. I do these things on stage where I have a chance to talk about all my history books, kind of a red, white, and blue night. It's kind of winning the war on history. I never thought history were going to have a war about American history. We know it's not perfect, but to tell the story is compelling and needs to be told and looked at around the world as one of the most remarkable rises ever. Well, my new book, The President Freedom Fighter, tackles the Civil War area leading up to and through the Civil War. It's Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and their battle to save America's soul. But I'll talk about all the others and then be able to take your questions and have a great time. There's VIP opportunities. It's going to be... Uh, go to BrianKillMe.com, get the details. But here's where you'll actually see everything. Uh, if you're in Charleston, West Virginia, you could go get tickets now, November 7th, Charleston Coliseum. Go to BrianKillMe.com. Orlando, Florida, WDBO listeners will be at the Plaza Live over off Bumbley Street in Orlando. That's November 21st. And Ponte Vedra virtually sold out at Ponte Vedra Concert Hall December 3rd. The next day... I pick up stakes like a, and my road crew, and we go December 4th to the Bill, Bill Heimer Capitol Theater uh, in Clearwater, Florida. And then hopefully I'll see everybody out there. In between, I'll have normal book signings. We also have the Patriots Awards. I'll be signing books there in Hollywood, Florida. It's going to be an exciting time. Hope to see all of you on the road. And for just book tour stuff, you go to you click on book tour. For the live stuff, just click on that, and you'll see all those ticket information. I'll see you out there now. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. There's now serious evidence that it was the Clinton campaign and Hillary Clinton acolytes that were directly involved in the generation of what has proven to be a conspiracy. Untrue. I find myself in awe gobsmacked, flabbergasted and startled by these revelations that Russiagate was a democratic conspiracy. Wow. And I have not heard that. I read it. That's Russell Brand, who played the worst author you could ever imagine. Just want to make sure this is muted. Uh, That was Russell Brand, who was on YouTube reacting to Durham Probe. I thought that was originally a joke. And it wasn't. And now that is actually him. And here's what he's referring to. Cash Patel has actually talked about it. Uh, John Durham has released two series, two indictments. And one is which Michael Sussman, a lawyer for the Hillary Clinton campaign. The other one is with the cyber guy who worked for the law firm with Michael Sussman, Perkins and Cooey. And I think they're working towards Glenn Simpson, and I think they're working towards Peter Strzok, and I think they could be working towards Lisa Page, because altogether, they were working to put together an investigation that if they did any type of research, would have realized it was generated by the Clinton campaign to get their, the, uh, to get their attention off the emails. Here is Cash Patel, cut 47. Will John Durham reel yeah. in any big fish, in your view? 
I, I believe so. And let me just put this in perspective. When I was running large-scale conspiracy and fraud investigations, they took me three, four, five years to prosecute. John Durham's only in his second year of the most political scandal in U.S. history. So I believe within the next six months, look out for indictments against the folks like Fusion GPS and Glenn Simpson for helping perpetuate this fraud. And look out for individuals like Lisa Page and Peter Strzok. I believe they're already helping John Durham. They're cooperating with him to get the bigger fish like the Andy McCabe, who is the biggest fraudster next to James Comey. I think you're going to see these indictments start coming out on the individuals at the top. Uh, it's just going to take a few more months, but I'm, I remind your viewers, it takes a little bit of time to work these matters. And just to review, so if I woke up to the FBI and I say I have information for any case, okay, they have to do a background check to find out where I'm coming from. They have to find out what, what I do for a living, uh, where I might have had this information. They have to verify what I said is true. If this guy, Michael Sussman, comes up to the uh, comes comes up to the FBI and says, "Listen, I got news about Donald Trump. Hey, really? What is it? He's got links to this bank. Take a, check this out." And he, I show the cyberlinks. At one point, do you say, "Hey, Michael Sussman, what do you do for a living? I'm a lawyer." Well, are you with Perkins Coie? Because it says here you're full time employee. They give you 401k and dental. They give you and and do you know the Perkins Coie law firm are the ones that uh, are working for the DNC and for the Hillary Clinton campaign because Hillary Clinton bailed out the DNC. Do you understand how even if your information is perfect, it's pristine, it it does look like you have an axe to grind and something to gain from this story? Are you going to tell me the FBI could not figure that out? Or if they can't figure it out, it's scary. If they did figure it out and they didn't care, that's even scarier. Cut 46. I think they knew right away. And the documents that we put out in the Nunes investigation, the Nunes memo, and the HIPSI uh, report on Russian active measures show that the FBI knew right away because their FISA abuse process, now that declassification process is complete, and your viewers can read it, that the FBI knew the information was fraudulent. They knew the credibility problems with Christopher Steele, and they knew the DNC through Fusion GPS and Perkins Coie were piping in tens of millions of dollars into into the machine so that they could get up a FISA warrant on President Trump. So I think they knew right away, which is why I think the individuals at the head of the FBI need to be held accountable. So that's the big question. So James Comey, is he just like the king of England, has no idea what's happening beneath him? Or does he look below? I think he does. I mean, if he's out there in his car calling in details about a Trump meeting that he had at Trump Tower, uh, he's complicit. He's involved in it. And I find it very interesting that he has not said a word in these last few days. Now, his wife's probably saying, you better go hide. You really brought an unwanted attention on us. And you're six foot nine. And you can't hide. But you at least stay off camera. So that, I thought, was some of the most interesting things to talk about because there was so much drama on Capitol Hill because of these spending programs, because the Afghanistan situation is so controversial and let us down in so many different ways, because there's always something going on with uh, Joe Biden and his team. People aren't focusing on what's happening with Durham. And because you don't know the names. We've even gotten to know the FBI names, but you don't know the names uh, of the people that he's indicted yet. But for people who know what he's doing, they're quite intrigued and some are quite nervous. Cut 42. The DNC paid for As a former federal prosecutor who prosecuted national security cases and a former federal public defender, I'm intimately familiar with federal indictments, especially ones that we talk about today. The John Durham indictment against Michael Sussman for lying to the FBI is normally an indictment that is about two to three pages long at max. A 27-page indictment is reserved for those mob-style conspiracy cases or large-scale fraud cases that the Department of Justice brings. And as uh, people who know this well say, this is just the beginning. It makes it seem as though we get this, we get this, we get that, and then soon we got some recognizable names, if, of course, it leads there, if that's where the truth leads you to. 
Hey, uh, don't forget to watch Fox & Friends tomorrow. May we keep it here, BrianKillmeadShow.com. If you ever missed the show and you want any hour, uh, go grab the podcast. Uh, You can get it anywhere you get the podcast. Uh, See you next time. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.